Before we begin our Torah study this morning, let's pray together. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam asher kidshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. We are continuing in a theme that is found in this week's Haftor portion, rather, and in the Haftor portions that have preceded it and will follow for the next month or so. It's the theme of comfort. And as we're preparing for the coming of the high holidays for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, where we stand before God and we acknowledge both our sin and his kingship, there's a tendency when we're examining ourselves to, to feel not only guilty, but disappointed and even ashamed that we haven't made more progress with him, that, that we hoped to be more, more this and more that. You can fill in the blanks. Or less this and less that. The Haftorah portions are themed around comfort for this reason. Because when, when you're feeling disappointed in yourself or ashamed, uh, you may forget that God is ready to receive everyone who's contrite. He's ready to receive everyone who humbles themselves, who confesses their sin, not just the little s sins, but the big sin of independence from God, of ignoring God, of trying to live our lives without regard to him. That is the great capital crime of humanity. And God not only forgives us through Messiah Yeshua, but he receives us. The scripture says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this helps us remember that, that, that when we're coming clean with God, we don't have to hide ourselves from him. We can come closer to him. And comfort is one of the means by which God draws us close. During the times of our greatest vulnerability, he pours out his comfort. He pours out his love and his compassion, and he draws close to us as well. We want to connect this week's Haftor portion to the theme of the revival of the Jewish people and the revival of the nations of the world. And this week's Haftor portion includes Isaiah 49, not the entire chapter, and I actually want to refer to a passage that's not in the Haftor portion but precedes it, something that we've been looking at for a number of weeks. It's in Isaiah 49, verse 6. The Lord has said, it's not enough. Can you say that with me? It's not enough. It's not enough that you're merely my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the offspring of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so my salvation can spread to the ends of the earth. It's not enough. Now, it's important to understand that correctly. It does not mean that it's insignificant that you do this. What it means is there's even more. There is even more that God has in mind. God has in mind that, 
that the Jewish people will be restored to him. In every age, in every season, in every place where the Jewish people have distanced themselves from God or have gone through challenges that have left hearts, uh, hearts hardened or people uncertain about the existence and the mercy of God, God wants to revive his people. He wants to use us for this purpose. And throughout the generations and throughout the ages, God has, has touched the hearts of some people who would say, Lord, I want to be an instrument of restoration. I want to help others get close to you. But the Lord says, that's important. But there's even more on top of it, and that is that the same people who are involved in the revival of the Jewish people would also be involved in the revival of the nations of the world. It's not an either or. It's not that the revival of the Jewish people is something that God used to be interested in, but now he, does, he could care less. That's not true. God is passionate for his children. And he loves all the people who live on the earth. And he desires that everyone would be restored to, the, to him. So God loves the Jewish people. And really, this is the backbone of the Messianic movement, that God wants to revive the Jewish people, that he wants to use the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the revelation of Messiah Yeshua, as not only the great sacrifice, but the redeemer and the one who teaches us, but also leads us in the right way. God who has come down from heaven, taken on a human body, and become our kinsman redeemer. This is the backbone of the Messianic movement. We exist for this reason. God wants to revive his people through Messiah, and he wants us to participate in that. That's foundational. And so we want to be a congregation that's a home to, to every Jewish person who is coming into a good relationship with Messiah Yeshua. But we also want to be a home to every kind of Jewish person who has questions about the Lord and wants to come to, to a synagogue where they can explore, is it true that the God of Israel is alive? Is it true that Yeshua is the Messiah? So we want to be a safe place for such people. But it's not enough just to do that in the same way that it's not enough just to have a backbone. Can you imagine if that's all you had? If you had a backbone without limbs, you could do nothing. You could neither walk nor reach out. The backbone is essential because it holds things together. However, the Lord is saying to the Jewish people through Isaiah 49, verse 6, that I want you not only to be concerned for the revival of your own people, but for the revival of all the people that God has created, to be a light for the nations. Now, this isn't always easy for, for Jewish people because of the experience of anti-Semitism, of hatred, which is uh, a strong force, and it seems sometimes growing stronger in front of us. And it's not always easy for uh, Jewish people who are trying to come to Yeshua to deal with the fact that there's been Christian anti-Semitism and Christian hatred and Christian persecution. And, and the historical facts are often an impediment 
to Jewish people actually being reconciled to the Lord. However, we have to get beyond that. We have to move forward. We, we can't get stuck because of that history. We have to aim for God's future condition and what he wants to accomplish. So one of the most powerful things you can do in understanding prophetic things is to take into your heart and in your mind that which God says he will do and that which he has been doing along the way and make that a priority for yourself. Where you start loving what God has in mind, you start making it important to yourself, and you find a way to be fruitful as a servant of the Lord for the things that are important to him. It's powerful, and it's important to do this. So Jewish people need to, uh, to deal with the impediments of anti-Semitism, which can cause us to be hardened to God's plan for us to be a light to the whole world. We have to deal with that. Last night I remembered for the first time in decades an experience my little sister Rona had when she was about five years old and she went to visit a new friend and she was at her house and, and Rona at that time was like this innocent little Jewish girl with big old glasses and, and now she's an attorney and doing well. But when she was five years old and she was uh, visiting at the home of a new friend for the first time, a friend from school, she turned to this girl and she said, do you like Jews? And the girl said, no, I hate Jews. And poor Rona was in shock. But she wanted to know, you know, at five, she needs to know, like, what am I gonna do? But fortunately, before she could have a, a complete emotional reaction to it, the girl continued. I hate Jews. I hate orange juice. I hate tomato juice. <laughs> and I remember when Rhoda came home and she was telling us about what had happened. It was like, well, that went better than you thought. <laughs> but that sensitivity is something that, that in, a, in a way, Yeshua even expressed. Do you remember when he was with the Samaritans? And the Samaritans had a certain kind of theology. It was a kind of replacement theology. They had a, a, a modified version of the scriptures. They had different places that were important and a different understanding of um, themselves before God. And Yeshua's meeting with this Samaritan woman, and do you remember, he says to her, salvation is Jewish. That's controversial for him to say. And many of our English translations put it this way, salvation is of the Jews, which is an awkward way to say anything in English. Corned beef is of the Jews. Hanukkah is of the Jews. Yeshua said, salvation is of the Jews. And don't forget that when he was speaking that, he was using a, a form, a, 
a sound-alike word, Yeshua, is Jewish. It would have sounded exactly the same if he had said, Yeshua is Jewish, as if he said, salvation is Jewish, because you would say it in the same words to, uh, to someone. So he was saying to the Samaritan woman, salvation is Jewish, and you Samaritans don't know what you worship, but we do. Well, Yeshua was dealing with something there. He wasn't trying to show rejection, I want you to understand that, but he was trying to affirm the continuing importance of his own Jewishness and of the revelation to the Jewish people, and he understood that Samaritans could be reconciled to God correctly if they got this idea correctly. And he just very gently wanted to help this woman not be stuck in the teachings that she had received and the cultural imprint that she had received. So it's true that the nations of the world need to reconcile with these facts, but, but we also, Jews and Gentiles together in a Messianic congregation, need to reconcile to this. So God intends to restore the children of Israel. That's important for us to, to know. But he doesn't intend to stop there. He will also revive the nations of the world. Now in verse six, the prophetic word helps us see the connection between Jewish revival and the revival of the world. These are related to each other. In fact, uh, for some people it's, it's a great mystery. It's not obvious that the revival of the Jewish people is connected to the revival of the whole world. And some people have in their mind that God has already completed his intended work among the Jewish people. If that were the case, then he's already completed his intended work among the nations of the world, because the two are related. But he hasn't completed it. He's moving forward in his plans, and he wants us to move forward with him. As well, we can see in this passage that it's directed to those among the Jewish people who are stirred and who are called to be a part of the spiritual revival of the Jewish people. And this prophetic word helps us understand that the same people who are called to be part of the revival of the Jewish people are also called to be part of the revival of other ethnic groups and nationalities. God wants Jews to be revived. God wants Gentiles to be revived. And his idea is that we can be revived in him and restored in him and renewed in him, and then we can appreciate each other even more. So it's not this. It's not that God is going to take all the Jews and all the Gentiles and put us in a big basimatic blender and just pulverize us into one bloody mess. It's rather that we will be restored in such a way that our Jewishness is revived and the ethnicity of every nation is revived. So it's not that the Italians are going to lose their Italian capacities and strengths and virtues. It's that each people group will come into fullness about uh, how God has called them. So our Messianic synagogue is an adumbration. Do you like that word? 
It's a great word. I don't know if any of you got to use it this past week. Did anybody even try? I did. Our Messianic Synagogue is an adumbration. It's an advance indication of what God wants to do on behalf of the Jewish people in the whole world. And so look around and you'll see many Jewish faces, many Jewish families here, and you'll see many different ethnic groups as well. You'll see all different skin colors, different languages here, different countries of origin. And this is a prophetic picture of what God can do. Now, if you're sitting nearby anybody, not just all by yourself, smile at them and, and wave to them and make nice to them in some way. You can even say, I'm glad you're here. You might even say, I'm glad I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm here. Well, this week's Haftor portion includes a prophetic word that is meant to encourage Jewish people who can't see how the broken world can be healed. Maybe as the Haftorah describes, there are people who went far away from God and now are trying to come back and they just don't know if they can. Or they've seen their family broken or just experienced the broken world around them and they're just thinking, this can't be fixed. Maybe you've had that thought or that feeling sometimes. You look at the world around you and you say, it's impossible. Some of the people in this condition can't understand, they can't imagine that their families can possibly be restored. But God makes it clear that it is possible because he will take initiative. It's in his heart. Now, many times we think, well, nothing's impossible with God. But I want you to think about something else. Nothing's impossible for God. That which God sets out to do, that which he says he will do, no matter how long it takes, will be done. So God makes it clear that he'll take initiative to bring his prophetic word into reality. And then he speaks about one of the ways that he's going to do it, and that's in this week's Haftor portion in Isaiah 49, verses 22 and 23. By the way, turn there if you have your Bible. How many of you brought a real Bible with you? And, and how many of you brought another kind of real Bible with you? The Digerati generation? Awesome. So Awesome. So in Isaiah 49, in verses 22 and 23, we'll look at it, um, we realize that God plans to use Gentiles to revive Jewish people. <laughs> Hallelujah over here, amen over here. <laughs> that's it? That, that's it? Your way. That's the best all of you could do? Okay. He, he will use Gentiles to revive Jews. He will... 
Oh, oh wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a good news. <laughs> now you're talking. He will also use Jews to revive Jews. Yeah, that's good news. And he will use Jews to revive Gentiles. I, I was thinking of two, two examples that sort of blur everything at the same time making it clear. <laughs> You'll see what I mean. When we were working in the former Soviet Union, um, we were working with congregations that were adapting the Alpha Course for a Messianic Jewish experience, and it became the Aleph Course. And it was quite useful for a number of congregations. During the process of adaptation and then seeing many Jewish people coming to the Lord, we connected with Nikki Gumbel, who was the founder, originator, and leader of the Alpha Course based in England. And he invited us to meet with him and his senior team to talk about what was going on. We brought different representatives from the Messianic congregations that um, were working in this direction. And during our time together, he shared something that he hadn't shared before, and that was that he was Jewish. And he told us about his father being a Jew and, and then some of his early experience. And this is what we were understanding. Okay, God is using a, a Jewish Episcopalian in England to help Messianic Jews in the former Soviet Union be revived. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So I remember asking him, is it okay if we pray for you about growing in your Jewishness? He wasn't certain. <laughs> so uh, that may be on hold. But it was, it was interesting. Why is it interesting? Because in his person, he was Jewish. He was the son of a Jew and a Gentile. Do you see that? And in his person, God is using him to revive the nations and the Jewish people. It's very interesting to me. So that's one example. Another example is a friend of ours, Neil Labar, here in Jacksonville. And he is the Anglican bishop for the southeast region of the United States. And like Nicky Gumbel, but more bold, Neil is also Jewish. He is uh, the son of a Jewish doctor and uh, a Gentile mother. But isn't it interesting that, that God is working behind the scenes and using people who are coming from a Jewish parent and a non-Jewish parent in order to do good for all the nations of the world. And I remember there was a time when um, 
Church of the Redeemer, the church that Neil had, had founded. Um, they lost their building because of uh, intra-denominational conflict that had to be worked out, and they had no place to worship. And we opened up our synagogue to them for three years. And um, it was a great blessing to us and to them as well. So it's interesting to me how God makes it a priority to join people together for the common and mutual good. And it may not be obvious if you don't know people's backstories, if you don't know them well enough to know the facts about them, or if you don't know who's who. And one of the facts of the world is that there are many Jewish people throughout the world who are hiding their Jewishness because of fear of anti-Semitism, because of past prejudice and discrimination, because of the Holocaust, because of this and because of that. And so there are many Jewish people who are Jewish on the inside but not on the outside. And some of them are afraid. And some of them need to be revived with a holy chutzpah to not be afraid. Well, God uses Gentiles to revive Jews. He uses Jews to revive Jews. He uses Jews to revive Gentiles. And he definitely, definitely, that's what the scripture we're going to read right now will tell us. He will use Gentiles to revive Jewish people. And this, this passage, Isaiah 49, verses 22 and 23, is included in the traditional Haftorah that's read in synagogues everywhere today. Now, it's, it's understood best by Messianic synagogues because we have a greater sense of experience and appreciation for this. But in synagogues throughout the world, this, these words in this passage will be announced as part of God's plan. Isaiah 49, starting in verse 22. The Lord God Almighty says this, I am beckoning to the nations, or I'm turning to the nations, and I'm raising my banner for the peoples. Where it says nations, you know what the Hebrew word is? Goyim. I'm turning to the Goyim. I'm beckoning to the Goyim. And they will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. So who is the your? It's the Jewish people. This is spoken to Jewish people, and it's a prophetic word from the Lord through Isaiah. And just to verify, how many of you know Isaiah was Jewish? He's a Jewish prophet. This is in the Tanakh. This is uh, in, in Hanavim, the, the prophets. It is part of the Jewish scriptures, which are the foundation as well um, for the body of Messiah. This word is saying something. God will turn to the Gentiles of the world, and they will become instrumental in the revival of the Jewish people. And they will bring your sons in their arms, and they will carry your daughters on their shoulders. It's a powerful statement. Kings will be your foster fathers. Their queens and princesses, your wet nurses or nursing mothers. It's important to grasp what this is speaking about. 
God has a plan for reviving the Jewish people. That is the, in, the, the essential message of the Haftorah reading. God will revive the Jewish people. Embedded in that is this statement, and I will turn to the nations and they will take part in this. And you, the Jewish people, you'll be carried home to God and to your land and to your people by the Gentiles. It's important to understand that God has a plan to use Jews and Gentiles for mutually beneficial purposes in order to accomplish his greatest purposes for humanity. And this requires two groups. And what I'm about to say may seem overly simple, and it may seem obvious, and you may say, duh, why do you even have to say this? And the reason I have to say what I'm about to say is because throughout the world, people ignore it, or they forget it, or they treat it as not true. God needs Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. The whole idea of one new man is misunderstood when we think what it means is the Jews stop being Jewish and they assimilate into the dominant Gentile Christian form of faith. That's not what it means. It's describing something that would be better understood as one new humanity or one new humankind. And you can compare it to this, because the scripture says, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek, and people misunderstand what that means, so the rest of the statement helps us understand, neither male nor female. I don't know about you, I'm married to a woman, and I'm glad there are differences. So when God joins us together, as he promises to, even in Genesis, to make us basar echad, one flesh, what he doesn't do is, is make us androgynous, where he, he obliterates the differences between us and we're united into a uh, female man or a man-woman or something. No, we remain distinct, am I right? and we have differences, and we celebrate those differences, but together we, we form a completion, a complementary whole that has incredible value. In the same way, Jews and Gentiles remain distinct, but they have a way of relating together in their distinction that causes us to be mutually beneficial and blessings to each other. So there's mutual dependence. We all need each other. Jews need Gentiles. Gentiles need Jews. I won't go into it in all the detail that it deserves, but it's, it's worth knowing this, that when Abraham was married, he wasn't married to a Jew. Sarah wasn't born Jewish. How many of you knew Sarah wasn't born Jewish? How many of you knew Abraham wasn't born Jewish, for that matter? But let's say he's the first. 
But Sarah was not born into a Jewish family. So you have, you have Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is the God of Israel. So um, the covenantal relationship, we could say, is a Jewish relationship with, with God and with Abraham. But Abraham's not married to a Jew. So they have Isaac, so we know according to modern Orthodox Jewish law, Isaac isn't Jewish. And that's a problem. Here's the problem. Isaac is Jewish. So what that means is the law on this matter uh, is not correct. That Orthodox understanding is not correct because Isaac is counted by God covenantally as a Jew. He's circumcised on the eighth day, not in the 13th year. He's circumcised as a Jew, he's given Brit Milah, and he is taught the covenant that Abraham has made with God. Now, Isaac marries a woman who's not born Jewish. So, you know what that means? Jacob is not Jewish. except he is. Sometimes we, we have to evaluate um, inherited theology and culture and tradition and determine is it true, is it accurate, and is it applicable? And in this case, that part of inherited tradition is not correct. So then, Jacob, Jacob marries women who are not born Jewish. So you know what that means? All the children of Israel aren't Jewish. <laughs> no, they are. They are. Right? Right. Okay, so sometimes you have to use empirical evidence and inductive reasoning to figure these things out. It's like, wait a minute. I need to see this more clearly. So, then you have Joseph. Joseph, Joseph marries the daughter of Potiphar. Who is Potiphar? He's an Egyptian. And he's an idol worshiper of some sort. Worships false gods. And so they have two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so clearly these kids are not Jewish. Except they are. And Jacob, Israel, calls them as their grandfather and he declares that they now are his sons and he says to Joseph, any more kids you have, you can keep. These are mine. <laughs> and not only that, he transfers the rights of firstborn that had been uh, Reuben's but were mishandled. He transfers to Joseph through Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, the Egyptian boys. And Reuben is legally the firstborn 
and technically the firstborn, but the spiritual responsibility is transferred over to Ephraim and Manasseh. And it is not that they are Gentiles, it's that they are part of the Jewish people. They were not born of a Jewish mother, but yes, of a Jewish father. It's very important to grasp that. Moses. The lawgiver. The best Jew we had. Up until Yeshua. Moses marries a black woman who's not a Jew. Am I right? I mean, let's just tell it the way it is. And in fact, his brother and his sister were upset. Yeah. However, let's look who was more upset than the brother and the sister. It was in a different episode. You, you, you have to follow the whole series to, to get this. God says to, to Moses, give Brit Milah to your son. Now, there's a problem because God doesn't understand Jewish law. So the, the son of the black woman is counted by God as a Jew, but Moses doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to circumcise his own son. And do you remember what happens? God is really upset with Moses. Really upset. And Moses' life is even at risk. This is what the scripture says. This is not my opinion, I'm just giving you you know, what everybody can read for themselves. And even though Moses knows God wants him to do it and has told him to do it, he can't bear to do it or he doesn't do it. Who gives Brit Milah to the boy? Zipporah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. The first black female moil in recorded history. <laughs> I don't think I ever thought of that before. That's an interesting detail. So you have this, you have this history of Jews marrying people who are not born Jewish. But we can go further. I'm just giving you some highlights. You can go further and you can look at the example of Ruth who becomes the, the, the fountainhead, if you will, of King David, right? And every Jewish person knows that to King David was promised Messiah. But King David did not sprout on his own. He was born in a normal way And if it had not been for Ruth, there would be no David. Do you get that? No Ruth, no David. No Ruth, no baby David. No baby Ruth, no baby David. (laughs) Yeah, it takes all of that. You have to think it through. It's like, okay. And now we know why there's a candy bar in her honor. 
You see, all along the way, God is doing things that demonstrate what he has in mind to accomplish in the very end. And it's not full and complete. It looks like exceptions, because numerically it is, but it's an adumbration. It is an advance indication of what God is going to do. Now, there's a spiritual battle about all of this. And at many times, the opposition seems to be quite effective, and I dare say that you have been in the middle of the battle. I'll, I'll ask you a question. If, if you're from a, a Gentile family, even a Christian family, do you find that your family doesn't understand what you're doing? How many, how many can verify that? Okay, now if you're from a Jewish family, do you find that your family doesn't understand what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. And, and so, what we're, what we're doing here, this, this bringing together through Messiah in, into a community of faith, both Jews and Gentiles, it's not understandable. It's not obvious to everyone. And so we have to learn how to give answers and explanations to people um, that can help them understand. But it's worth understanding this, God will turn to the Gentiles and he will use them to bring the sons and daughters of Israel back to their God and back to their people. And one of the great challenges is this, and I really want to just focus on this as the last thought. These people are called to be foster fathers and foster mothers. And that is a, a terribly hard calling in life. In any case, it is. Anyone who has ever been a foster parent knows how hard it is, how much sacrifice it takes, how much vulnerability there is to try to pour all the love you have out to someone else's child, knowing that they will be, at some point, probably taken from you and restored to their family. It's an incredible sacrifice. It takes great love, it takes great courage, and it's accompanied with a lot of heartache, but great reward. And in the same way, when, when Gentile Christians are used by God to bring Jewish people back to the God of Israel and to the people Israel and the family of Israel, it involves heartache and sacrifice as well. To bring the children back to their own people to bring the children back to their God and not to try to make them into something else, but to be truly a foster mother and foster parent. And I think that the phrase, kings will be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers, indicates not that God will find kings and queens to do it, but the people who do it will be like kings and queens in God's eyes and will be elevated in honor and, and uh, in majesty before him because of their great sacrifice. Sadly, many Gentile Christian pastors who we've seen who started out well in this matter often finish poorly because they can't accept being a foster parent. And they want to hold on and control and even sometimes do harm to the very messianic ministries that they helped found and establish. But I believe God wants the 
everyone to come through this effectively. And that's what's in my heart. I want you to understand God is committed to the idea of Jews and Gentiles being mutual blessings and being mutual servants. So turn to someone sitting next to you and say this, we need you. 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 We're going to close now with Aaron's blessing. Would you please rise? We don't have time. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Ye'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yasem lecha shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Let's meet next door for the special Oneg. Let me just show you.